So we're here in Genesis chapter 9. We've been looking at the life of Noah. We've looked at his life before the flood, his life, the life of Enoch, the life of the people around him, how there was so much violence and sexual sin, sexual immorality going on around the planet. And the need because of this in God's eyes to judge the world and to literally wipe out all of mankind. And not just mankind, but also everything in the animal kingdom. And how the Lord, he looks at Noah and he sees his righteousness and his faith and the Lord, he's blessed by it. It's something sweet to him. It's something good to him. And now God decides to save Noah and his family from the flood and in his righteousness. Now the Lord asked Noah to take a huge step of faith by building a giant boat. Even though to our knowledge there's never been a boat before. There's never been a harbor before. There's definitely never been any rain or storms before. And now he's asked to build a humongous boat, a huge barge really, to protect himself and his family from the oncoming rain and floods that have never happened before. So he obeys the Lord. It begins to rain. He's protected him and his family. The Lord tells them, hey, come into the ark. The reminder for us in every trial and every difficult season in life, God is there with us. Finally, last time in chapter 8, we saw that the ark finally came aground and the waters descended. And what's the first thing that Noah does after getting through the trial? It's worshiping the Lord. It's sacrificing unto God. And again, a reminder to us to be worshiping the Lord during the good times, during the bad times, when he answers our prayer, and even when he answers our prayer the way we don't want it answered. It's good to worship the Lord. But now we come to chapter 9 and we'll read verses 1 through 4. And then we'll just slowly but surely make it through the chapter. It tells us, And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on the sea, to every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life that is the blood. Again, God has wiped out all of mankind. And in a sense, he's hitting the reset button or the restart button only with Noah, his sons, and their wives. Yet we see the Lord giving Noah and his sons, his family, some very similar commands to that which he told Adam and Eve in the beginning, throughout the beginning of the book of Genesis, minus one key difference. If you want to, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, a couple pages to the left. And in verse 28 and 29, we see the Lord giving them a very similar blessing and command. It reads, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. 
And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So he gives them the same blessing. He gives them the same commands to be fruitful and multiply. A great reminder to us, how are we growing? How are we growing others? How are we growing our family and the things of the Lord? Are we being fruitful and multiplying? Or are we being a burden and sucking the life out of something else, right? Or out of someone else. It's a good reminder to us. But there's one key difference here. Here in Genesis 1, they're told that they can eat of every tree, every fruit, every plant. But now in verse 3, chapter 9, it tells us every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you. Surprise, there's no amens there. But now we get to eat meat, right? We get to eat meat. We get to eat chicken and steak, fish, all sorts of great things. One of the reasons this may have taken place is because of the fall. We know that Adam, he's cursed and he gets a lot of bad consequences for their sins. The main ones being now it's by the sweat of his brow that he will be able to tend to the farm and that he'll be able to eat. The Lord also tells him now there's going to be thistles and thorns and weeds more so than the actual plants and seeds that you put down. So perhaps some scholars believe the Lord is giving Adam a chance to make his food a bit easier. It's easier to take 50 pounds from a hog or from a cow, 50 pounds of meat, than it is to get 50 pounds of grain or of rice and things of that sort. So perhaps that's one way to look at it. Another great point and picture for us to remember is that the planet is continuing to grow further and further from God's perfection and God's original intent for it. So for us to remember in the day and age we live in, thousands of years after Adam and Eve, how much further are we from God's original plan and intent for this world, for this planet, for our lives? And now to give the animals a fighting chance, he places a fear and terror on each and every animal. Something that did not take place in Genesis 1 through 8. So again, imagine the relationship that Adam and Eve had with the animals. Imagine the relationship all of mankind sort of had with the animals before this, right? Very easy from Adam and Eve to be able to move out of the garden. You get a couple elephants couple of silverback gorillas, they're moving everything for them, taking it out, all sorts of pets, all sorts of amazing things. But now there's fear and terror placed in every animal towards mankind. So to those of you who are fearful of those cockroaches or lizards or birds, remember the Lord's given you dominion over them and they're more afraid of you than uh, you should be of them. Husbands, don't tell your wife that though when she asks you to, to attend to the problems in the home. Um, but it's good reminders for us. Each animal, every living thing, hey, it's been given into our dominion. Those things, they have fear and terror from us. But now in verse 4, God begins to put an importance and great significance on what? On blood, right? On the blood. He says you can eat of every single thing, but of the blood you cannot eat from it. So those of you that like your blood sausage, you got to pray. You got to pray. You got to go to the Lord about it. La patriada, I just like more chorizo. Um, but that's between you, the Lord, Genesis 9. But what's the reason for this? What's the reason for this? It's in order to protect and respect life. It's also paving the way for the payment 
for our sins. This is really what he's doing. If you want, you can turn to Exodus chapter 12. And here we see, again, great importance placed on blood. To get the context here, the people of Israel have been in slavery for generations. But now the Lord wants to save them and free them from their slavery. There's a 10 different plagues that hit Egypt. And the last one is the firstborn of every home will be put to death as the angel of death goes throughout all of Egypt. But they're given a way out of it. They're given a way, if you would, for salvation to their homes and for the lives of their firstborn son. In Genesis 12, 13, it tells us, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, what did it take? It took a perfect lamb being put to death to save the family and to save the home. Again, the author of the Bible is amazing. The book is an amazing book. How from the beginning he paints the picture of Jesus being the spotless lamb that dies for the sins of the world and for mankind. We can turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And again, the importance of blood. And why does God make such an important rule and command when it comes to blood? Romans, chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. It tells us, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the blood being used throughout the book of Exodus, throughout the Old Testament, it was a reminder that sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. And in these times of the tabernacle and of the temple, the death would be that on an animal, on an innocent animal. The little dove didn't do anything wrong. That oxen didn't say those things to his wife or lie to somebody else. But now the sin needed to be paid for. The sin needed to be dealt with. And this is the reminder to us, even now, our sins require a payment. And thank the Lord now it's not a physical one, right? It's not people coming up to Calvary Chapel, Miami with their doves or with their bulls, with their goats or with anything like that. Now, glory be to God in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, chapter right next door, it tells us, But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Jesus has come to die so that his blood can save us from sin. In the Old Testament, it would be to cover their sins. It was they had incurred a certain amount of debt, and now they would have to have an animal be put to death to basically wipe out that amount of debt. But now what Jesus does is he justifies us. It's not that there was debt and now he pays up to debt. Now he completely wipes it out. 
That now, from now on, God sees us. Again, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, now God sees you as perfect, as never sinning, as never messing up. And again, the shot that that takes to condemnation, the shot that that should have in our lives towards condemnation, that the way God sees us, Again, if we're right in Christ, is perfect, is clean, is without fault. And this is why blood is so important. Before it was something literal, but now Jesus came once and for all to die for our sins, being the perfect sacrifice. And just like the blood on the doorpost of Egypt, blood of a perfect sinless lamb being splattered across a piece of wood, the same thing happened with Jesus Christ upon the cross. Finally, if you want, you can turn to 1 John chapter 1. We'll look at two verses here. Again, why is the blood so important to the Lord? 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It tells us, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That now through Christ, our sins are not just paid for, we're not just justified, but now we have the power to not sin. Again, that's the glory, that's the power in Christ, is now we have the power to keep ourselves from sin through Christ and through his power. You read First and Second Peter, there's a way if we just completely get enveloped in the Lord and in the things of the Lord, it tells us you will not fall, you will not stumble. But yet, we still fall, we still stumble, but we need to continue to hold on to Christ and remember it's only the blood of Christ that gains us entrance into heaven. But the great reminder is every time I sin, it leads to death. There's going to be a payment involved. It's either my life for all of eternity in hell, and that's the payment for my sins, or it's the blood of Jesus taking my place for each and every one of my sins. So that's why the blood's so important. But we go back to Genesis chapter 9. Now we look at verse 5 through 7, and it tells us in verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, and populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Again, he gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply twice here. To our knowledge, there's only six people on the entire planet, right? They got a lot of space. They got a lot of real estate. But they need to populate it. They need to procreate it. But here we get something very important and very special. I was telling my wife, she needs to pray for me. Because within this chapter, we get two doozies when it comes to church people and what they believe and don't believe. But here, the Lord is telling us that human life is very special and very precious. And why is human life very special and very precious? First and foremost, because God said so. That's the very first reason why it's special and precious. The next reason is because in all of God's creation, 
even the angels included, there's only one life form that's made in his image. And that's us. That's mankind. That's each and every one of the people you see here, the kids in the kids' ministry, everybody you see in Sedanos or Walmart or wherever you go. That person, whether you like them or don't like them, they're made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. But now God, he's putting weight to this claim that we are made in the image of God. You see, if we're reminded in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, one of the reasons why God had to wipe out all of mankind is because of the amount of violence that was taking place on planet Earth. Genesis 6, verse 13, it says, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them, with the earth but now the lord he's giving power to this point he's giving power that hey i've made you in the image of god there's only six of you right now cain did horrible things to abel but now if anyone ever takes someone's life you have to take their life for it again there has to be a payment for that sin David Guzik, he tells us, in its original language, the Bible makes a clear distinction between killing and between murder. You see, not all killing is murder because there are cases where there is just cause for killing and self-defense and capital punishment where there is true law and order and due process in wars there are other instances where killing is accidental, like manslaughter and mistakes that happen. And this is killing, but not murder. But this is still a God-ordained commandment. We can turn to Romans chapter 13. And some people like government. Some people don't like government. Some people don't know what government is. But in Romans chapter 13... Again, it's interesting that God himself is the one who establishes government, whether you like it or not. This is what God says in Romans chapter 13. Again, very applicable for the day and age we live in. All the heat, the crazy climate, a political climate that we live in. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, it tells us, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Again, family, whether you like politics or not, whether you like government or not, it's a tool that God uses to protect life. Another great reminder for us is the government that people are dealing with when Romans chapter 13 is being written is nothing like our government. 
You have tyrants. You have people who are killing one another. You have men who are using Christians as candles in their gardens, putting Christians to death. And yet the commandment still stands to be in subjection to them, to not have to cause problems and riots or anything like that, but to follow the Lord. But we have great examples. We have examples of Jesus. We have examples of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That when the government's asking us to do something that is completely unbiblical, man, you make a stand for the Lord. And the Lord will bless you and honor you. We can turn to Numbers chapter 35. And with this, hopefully we'll be able to put this topic to rest. Numbers 35. See, there's a great balance that's needed in us as disciples of Jesus Christ. We can be complete grace and nothing but that, and it will lead to a lot of problems. We can also be complete law, and that will also lead to a lot of problems. That's why there's a great balance, and I do believe that's the reason the Lord puts that need is for us to grow our relationship with the Lord. That each and every scenario, each and every situation we go through and walk in, we should be coming to, Lord, what is your will in this situation? God, what do you want me to do here? This is what your word says. This is what your word says. But Lord, what do you want me to do here? And for us, when it comes to government, when it comes to the death penalty, according to God's scripture, government should be placed there to protect human life. So again, the next time we vote to pray, open a Bible, crack open a Bible and pray for the different candidates. Though God's word tells us to pray for those in political authority. But look at the candidates you want to vote for and are they valuing and protecting human life or are they devaluing human life? Again, family, we need to be true disciples of Jesus all the time, not just when it's convenient. And when there's no death penalty for murder, we are cheapening the value of human life. That's what we're doing when we take away the death penalty. And the Bible tells us that a lack of a death penalty pollutes and defiles a nation. Zach, where in the world is that? It's here in Numbers chapter 35. We can turn there in verse 30 and we'll finish up this chapter. It says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness moreover you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death but he shall surely be put to death and you shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest so you shall not pollute the land in which you are for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons and Israel. Again, family, it's a great reminder to us what shapes our view of this life. What's the thought process that makes us land on a certain side of a topic or of an idea? Is it truly the Lord and his word? Or are we holding on to other things as we create our philosophy and ideas for this world and this planet? As disciples of Jesus, the Bible needs to be a foundation of what is right and what is wrong. 
Do our basic beliefs about the way people should be living, do they agree with what's in God's word? Are we creating excuses or reasons to make things permissible that God deems wrong and sinful? I challenge us, I challenge myself to spend some time alone with your Bible and think about those topics and decide where you stand on marriage, on abortion, on sex, on violence, and on what's good and what's evil. At times we can be quick to align ourselves with a particular view because it's what has always been taught to us. Or someone we love or respect has always shown us this is the right way. Remember, as disciples of Jesus, we are calling him not only Savior, but Lord. So he and his word is what needs to rule and govern our lives. We've been talking about that through the book of Genesis, right? Who's the boss? Right? God's the boss. Jesus is the boss. And he's the one we need to go to for what I say is right or wrong. Not my beliefs, not my family's beliefs, not what my co-workers think, not what the people in my school think. I need to go to God's word, read it from cover to cover, and say, Lord, what do you have to say on this? You can go back to Genesis chapter 9. Uh, I'll confess to you, as I was studying, I told my wife, you got to pray for me, right? And this, we're talking about the death penalty. Later on, we'll talk about alcohol. And these things, they can ruffle some feathers. But if we trust in the Lord, we don't have to get angry about it. We don't have to get mad at it. Hey, it is what it is. This is what it says. We don't have to get super emotional about it for us to trust in the Lord and what he says. But Genesis chapter 9, now we'll read verse 8 through 11. It tells us, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So now God is making a promise to Noah and to every single living creature that he will never cut off all living creatures by a flood. It is important to note, however, that the world will one day be judged and destroyed again after the rapture and after the tribulation. You could just write down 2 Peter chapter 3. And you can read verses 1 through 7. But at the end of verse 7, it tells us, it warns us, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This is something that's scary, but if we hold on to Jesus being our true hope, man, this should bring us joy. This should bring us peace that one day Jesus is coming for his bride wanting to protect her, wanting to care for her, and he will take us up into heaven before the tribulation and before this immense judgment on the entire planet. Family, Jesus is coming soon. And if we truly believe this, if we really believe, hey, when I die, I'm going to heaven and not hell because of what I believe in Jesus Christ and the Bible, then I should also have a fire in my belly to be preaching the gospel. And to be sharing the gospel with those who I love who are unbelievers, with my friends who are unbelievers, with that person that just cut me off on the 826 heading home, that even though he may be having a bad day, if he's not saved, he's going to have a bad eternity, right? 
And that's why our view of this life, it should be changed. It should be different. We should not look just like this world. We shouldn't. We should be different. Genesis chapter 9, verse 12 through 19, the Lord in his infinite grace, not only does he make this promise to Noah, to his sons, and to all living creatures, and he doesn't just say, okay, now you just have to believe me. I'm going to make this promise, pinky promise, now you just have to believe me. No, the Lord in his grace, he even gives them a sign and a marker to remind them of the promise. Verse 12, it says, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, that's a rainbow, in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the clouds and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh of the earth. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was populated. Again, it's important to put yourself in, in the sandals of Noah, of Shem, Ham and Japheth and of their wives. Imagine the trauma that they've just been through, right? They've been in a boat for a whole year plus with animals, with nothing else to do. Not only that, but with this judgment, we see no mention of their cousins, of their grandparents, of tia or tio, right, or abuelo, all these things. You don't see any mention of them. So I'm sure without a shadow of a doubt, they had family that passed away and perished within the flood. Their friends, I don't know if they had coworkers, right, grocery stores, things like that. All of mankind got wiped out. Again, the stench that must have been going on on the planet with all the dead bodies, all the dead animals, being on the boat for, again, a whole year plus, it must have been a traumatic experience. So now imagine every time Noah and his family see rain, right? There's the PTSD kick in that they start freaking out. Not again, right? Not like, but now the Lord, he gives them a token. He gives them a promise that every time they hear lightning, every time they hear thunder and see lightning, they don't have to freak out. Get to the boat, right? They don't have to be freaking out every single time. And family, it's the same thing for us that the Lord, not only is he with us in the midst of the trial, but he comforts us after the trial. He says, hey, even if we have to go through that again, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm the one who wrote the book. I'm the one that's here from the beginning of time to the end of time. You can trust me. You can believe in me. And this is completely a covenant of grace and mercy. Noah and the rest of mankind, none of the animals did anything to deserve such a promise. And the same is true of salvation. It's all because of God and his infinite love, mercy, and grace. And not only does he make a promise, but he creates this visual picture in nature to remind Noah and his family, but also to remind us that every time we see a rainbow, we should think of the grace of God. We should think of the mercy of God. And it's cool. Kids, they always like rainbows, 
right? Some adults, they still freak out about rainbows, whether it's single or double rainbows all the way, right? Whatever may be the case, maybe just the rainbows and your lucky charms get you excited. But man, we need to pay attention to the grace of God. And it's also, it's great to note that in order for a rainbow to happen, we need both sunlight and rain. We need both. Even though some of us would say, man, I only want sunlight. I never want any rain. We would be in a difficult place in life. And same is true for our seasons in life. There are seasons when there's sunshine and everything's amazing and beautiful. And then there's seasons where it just seems like the rain is never going to stop. But we need both to see God and his grace. If we had nothing but sunlight in our lives, it would become a desert. It would become brutal having no shade or protection from the sun. And if we had nothing but rain in our lives, things would be pretty miserable, pretty wet, pretty sad. So a reminder too is oftentimes when we see God the most is in the midst of the trial. When we cling to the Lord the most is in the midst of the trial and tribulation. And what we're going to see later on here is we need to be careful when we just want that season of trial to be over and done with. Because we don't know what kind of a person we are going to become once that season is over. Are we going to take it for granted? Are we going to fall into sin? Are we going to take Jesus for granted? We need to be careful with these different seasons in life. We go back to Genesis chapter 9, and now we're going to read verse 20 through 28. And a very sad note to end on, the life of Noah. It says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk. And uncovered himself inside of his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders. And walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Again, what a sad way to end an amazing life. How Noah, he was the only righteous man on the entire planet, yet he was not above sinning and falling short. He was not above making mistakes. And there's so much we can take from this. One of the great things to remember is in Hebrews 11, Noah is mentioned there. Samson is mentioned there. A whole lot of messed up people that did crazy things are mentioned in Hebrews 11. So when we are a believer, the way the Lord sees us, again, is by the blood of Christ. And he sees the faith we take. He take, sees the steps we take. He sees the love and the things we've done for him. He doesn't focus on our weaknesses and blunders. Another thing to look at is the dangers of wine and of liquor. And we're going to look at that for a little bit. Hopefully you, you can bear with me here. But let's turn to Proverbs chapter 31. This is a warning to kings. This is a king's mom writing him a bunch of, hey, be careful with this. Pay attention to this as you rule this nation. In Proverbs 31, verse 4 through 6, it tells us, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine. 
or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. You can turn to Proverbs 23. A couple more verses just warning us, protecting us from the dangers of alcohol. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 through 35, it tells us, Who has woe and who has sorrow? Who has contentions and who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause and who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine and those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it warns us, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated or errors because of it is not wise. Finally, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We can receive some New Testament commands, warnings, concerns when it comes to alcohol. Ephesians chapter 5. This is Paul writing to us. In verse 17 it tells us, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's important to start off with this. Outside of pastors, the Bible does not tell us that drinking alcohol is a sin. It doesn't tell us that. And it's important to note that to protect ourselves from any legalism or putting rules and regulations on others. But the question remains, family, alcohol, is it profitable and edifying or is it just simply lawful? Am I doing it because it's going to be a benefit to me and my family and my church and my country? Or am I doing it simply because it's lawful and it's permissible? That word dissipation, which we saw in Ephesians, it's the word to dissipate, which means like when you shrink something down or when something wears away, when something is wasteful. It says to be unreasonable or uncontrollable in the pursuit of pleasure. And that's usually what happens with alcohol. It's either there to numb down difficult seasons in life. Right? You have a bad day at work and you just need a drink to cool off or to relax. You had a bad day so you need to go to the bar to just forget about things and to have a good time. But are we really trusting our own self-control and saying enough is enough? Though many Christians argue about the freedoms we have, and what's legalistic and what's not, I think all Christians can agree the harm 
that alcohol causes throughout our nation and throughout our world far outweighs the good that it adds to our nation or to our world. How many families have truly been built and blessed by alcohol and because of it? And how many families have been utterly destroyed and wrecked because of alcohol? God's word is clear of the many dangers related to alcohol. And he warns people and leadership within the church and even leaders outside the church to stay away from it. I challenge you, I exhort you, I encourage you. If you have a lot of people looking to you as an example, people who come to seek you out for counseling, it's probably safer to abstain from alcohol than to test your self-control and self-will. And the question remains, what about marijuana? What about other recreational drugs? Soon marijuana is going to be legal across the whole nation. Without a shadow of a doubt, there's too much money for the government for them to say no to it. So once marijuana and different drugs become lawful and legal, where there be room for church leadership to smoke weed and teach, right? Will they be able to have teachings of revelation while they smoke marijuana to figure it out and to clear their minds, right? Will there soon be Bible study and brownie fellowships? And it's sad to say, but I think sooner rather than later, we'll be there. Because I know that there's Bible and brew fellowships. I know that there's fellowships and outreaches within bars and within craft beer parties. And family, we've gotten so far away from the days when Christians were being put to death for their lives. And instead of seeing how much like the world or how free they can live their life, they were saying, Lord, whatever you want, you got it. And we have brothers and sisters throughout our world that that's the reality that they're facing. Not freedom to do more for themselves, but the freedom to stand for Christ and be put to death because of it. Or the freedom to shy away and walk away from it. Another key point to look at in this sad final story of Noah is that many have started well and finished poorly. But the opposite of it is also true. There are many who have started poorly yet finished so strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it warns us, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And the Bible, again, it's so truthful. It doesn't hide the sins and mistakes of the heroes of our faith. We have Noah who ends on a bad note. We have King Saul who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a head taller than every other person. He was handsome. He was good looking. He was a political leader. And yet he ends his life being put to death by the very nation he should have killed. King Hezekiah, he lives a great and an amazing life. The Lord says, hey, it's time for you to come on home, come up to heaven with me. Hezekiah begs and pleads, let me stay. And the last years of his life, he leaves the Lord and he's glorying in his own gold and silver and, and kingdom. You also have David, who started off with such boldness. Such a relationship with the Lord, but instead he gives it all up to sleep with another woman, even though he had multiple wives already. And because of the guilt of it, it affected the way he disciplined his kids and his standing for righteousness got watered down. But thank the Lord we have other examples as well. We have Samson, who his entire life was a wreck and a mistake. And yet in the end, it says that in his death, he slew more Philistines than in his entire life combined. We also have Peter, who would constantly stick his foot in his mouth 
and say a bunch of dumb things. Yet in the book of Acts, you'll be hard pressed to find another man that's filled with the Holy Spirit as much as Peter and who has as much boldness as Peter. We also have Saul of Tarsus, a man who's all about the book, a religious leader, and yet he was chasing down Christians and putting them to death, telling them to leave their faith or be put to death. And yet he's met with Christ, and one day he's martyred for the sake of the gospel. And then I was even reminded of John Mark, this young disciple that Paul and Barnabas fight because of him, that he was slowing the ministry down, he was lazy, he was tiring. And yet in the end, Paul asks for him by name to come and serve with him. Family, are you doing well right now? Are you doing well in your walk with the Lord? Are you ready today to meet Jesus? If the pop quiz happened today and Jesus comes, are you ready? Without a shadow of a doubt, can you look at with joy saying, man, my life has been good, Lord. I've served you. I'm ready to go home. If that's you, that's great, but you have to continue to be strong and work hard. You can't take it for granted. Just because we're doing well today doesn't mean we'll do well a week from now or a month from now or a year from now or 10 years from now. What good is it if I serve the Lord with all my heart in my teens or my 30s, but in my 40s, 50s, 60s, I leave him and I'm a, a pain in my family's side. But there's grace. There's mercy. Today we can go out and seek him. We can say, today, Lord, everything that was once gained to me, I now count as loss, and I'm giving my whole life for you, Lord. And whatever you say, I'm willing to do that. Another thing to be reminded of within this thought is that many people believe being about the Father's business or being on the mission of God or having responsibilities in church or having to attend church, it's a burden. But we should always look at it as a blessing. You see, when we are about our Father's business, it protects us from falling. You see, Noah, when he had to build a giant boat, he was busy, right? He didn't have time to get drunk or mess around. And same is true for our lives, family. If we're not serving the Lord, be careful. Be careful. Idle time the enemy loves. That's where he usually seeks people out and devours them. You can write down 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It's, this is David before he falls into sin with Bathsheba. And the beginning says... At the time when kings go out to battle, and then it tells you king, sends, king David sends out this person and this person and this person. But at the end of that verse, it says, but David stayed at Jerusalem. What would have happened to David? What would have happened to his sons and daughters? What would have happened to the nation of Israel if David would have been where he was supposed to be? Serving his Lord and defending his Lord. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus tells us, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Family, what brings you joy in life? What brings you satisfaction in life? When you eat a good meal, at least me, it, it brings satisfaction, right? You feel good. You have a little cafecito right afterwards, and man, you feel good, right? Great meal. You feel satisfied. Is being about the business of Jesus, is that what brings you satisfaction? Because if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to be a disciple, serving him, being about his business, whether you're like Martha or Mary, that's what should bring you that feeling of enjoyment and of satisfaction. We need to look at Noah's son, Ham. And we need to be careful how we deal with the sins of others and seeing their lives without anything to hide behind. 
Luke chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus commands us to treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And when we find other people in sin, do we truly treat them the way we want to be treated, right? Do we love on them and cover them up, or do we just put them on blast? Do we pretend like nothing's wrong, and yet we tell everybody else except them about what they confessed? Do you not all of a sudden find yourself in prayer meeting, praying out loud for this person and the sin that they've confessed to you? Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, you could write these down. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Again, family, if we're Christians, if we're disciples of Jesus, we should be acting like Jesus. And how did Jesus deal with people in their sin? First, he told them the truth. He told them, hey, man, you're in sin. You need to get right. That man you're with right now isn't even your husband. Then he pointed them to salvation, right? Get out of it. Focus on the Lord. Go and sin no more. But he did not condemn them whatsoever. He protected them. He cared for them. And this is how we should be treating others when they fall into sin. You can write down 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And is that not true for each and every one of us here? If you're here and you say you're saved, you are accepting the eternal forgiveness of Jesus. Each and every day, God, Jesus is forgiving me. So now how can I go and turn around and say, I'm not forgiving that person. I'm going to hold a grudge against that person. What they did to me was way too horrible. When God is forgiving us every single day, every single moment. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, you can write it down. It tells us, if your brother sins against you, some Bible translations, it just stops there. It says, if your brother sins, period, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So when you see someone in sin or you see someone and you see their whole life with nothing to hide behind, approach them. Show them their fault in private trying to win them over not trying to be more self-righteous not trying to make yourself seem out better than you really are but truly trying to win them over with the same grace mercy and love that you have but again family may this may this be us may this be true of us that we're growing with the lord as a result of coming to church as a result of this teaching today i'm saying lord from here on out i'm going to do x y or z because your word says, because I'm convicted, because this is what you showed me to do today. And it's, it's a tough way to end on Noah like that, right? But again, thank the Lord. When you go to Hebrews 11, it doesn't say Noah, that guy that got drunk at the end of his life and died. No, right? That's not what it says. It talks about his faith. It talks about he was a preacher of righteousness. And that's how we should look at others. That's the way Christ looks at us. So, man, take a stand for Jesus today. Take a stand for the Lord. Look at your life. Look at your stands, your beliefs, your worldview. Everybody talks about worldview, right? Man, does your worldview align with the Bible? 